Jeremiah 23, let's go ahead and go there as we're going to look at uh, some pretty interesting things. I actually want to begin with a story, uh, something that took place on January 15, 2009. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with this story, but uh, U.S. Airways flight number 1549 departed New York City's uh, LaGuardia's airport. And so within a few minutes, the plane collided with a flock of geese taking out both engines. And so the captain, Captain Sully Sullenberg, made an emergency landing in the chilly waters of the Hudson River. Most of you guys probably remember that, right? And so before he, he left the plane uh, and got it to safety, he walked the plane twice to make sure that there was no one on board. As the captain, he knew that he must be the last person on the plane and I think what happened immediately is this individual became a hero. There was even a movie made about him. But something that was ironic is three years later, almost to the date, it was January 13th, 2012, a massive Italian cruise ship, it was called the Costa Concordia. It crashed into the rocks and it started to sink. An investigation would determine the cause of the crash, and the reason they crashed was because the ship's captain, Francesco Chitino, was trying to impress a younger female dancer on board when he veered too close to danger. The ship started sinking with its 4,000-plus passengers on board. The captain, Chitino, fled to a lifeboat before the passengers made it off the ship. A Coast Guard member angrily told him on the phone while they were communicating, get back on that ship. Chatino later claimed that he fell into the lifeboat because the ship was leaning to one side, but the court didn't believe his story, and instead he was found guilty of manslaughter because people died, causing the shipwreck and abandoning the ship with passengers on board. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. To me, it's an interesting story because it shows the infinite difference between good leaders and bad ones. And we see that in today's chapter. We're going to see the distinction in our study tonight. Uh, And as we go through it, a lot of amazing prophecies. So I hope you guys really uh, tune in. Uh, I'm going to probably be sticking to my notes a lot because I don't want to go overboard. But to the best of your ability, tune in because Jeremiah 23 is an absolutely amazing chapter. Here the Lord begins by pronouncing woes and warnings to the false prophets Uh, These guys had the title of shepherd, but they failed at the task because we know it's a heavy role and responsibility, right, to be the leader of God's people. And so because of their carnal lives and constant lies to the people, the leaders then uh, caused Israel and Judah to be scattered throughout the world. It was, in one sense, their fault. It was their fault. That's how huge leadership is. You know, they spoke words and visions from their own heart. They preached peace when God's judgment was on its way. They had absolutely no concept of holiness. They not only tolerated sin, they celebrated sin. We're going to see in chapter 23, verse 17, uh, they said, no evil shall come upon you. And yet, how wrong they were. You know, in one sense, Jeremiah's message was repent. You know, if there's any sin... In your life, you got to get right with God because he's coming. His message was repent, while the false prophet's message was relax. Ain't no thing, but Jesus is coming. And we got to make sure we're ready. And so look what we read here in verse 1. Again, I'm reading the New Living Translation. It says, what sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep, For they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for, says the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to these shepherds. Instead of caring for my flock and leading them to safety, you have deserted them and driven them to destruction. Or the New King James says, scattered them. And so now God says, I will pour out judgment on you for the evil you have done to them. And so when you read different commentaries and listen to studies, a lot of people will kind of point, well, maybe this is the political leaders, you know, the king, his cabinet, so to speak. And it probably does have application there. 
But it's definitely, especially we're going to see the later part of the chapter, definitely uh, applicable to spiritual leaders. Because that is a heavy, heavy responsibility. The New Living Translation in verse 1 says, What sorrow awaits these leaders? Uh, New King James says, Woe to these shepherds. New English translation says the leaders of my people are sure to be judged. One translation says doomed to the shepherd leaders who butcher and scatter my sheep. I mean, it's a heavy responsibility. It's a warning for us as pastors, teachers, leaders of God's people. Sometimes you see these guys, they go to that position, they're doing all that stuff, they're stealing the money, they end up sleeping with the ladies, they end up making so many people stumble. Listen, before anyone gets into that place and position, they've got to understand the accountability they have, especially as a teacher. James 3.1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Why will we receive a stricter judgment? Because we're teaching the word of God, and we have to make sure we're rightly divided and declaring it and we also have to make sure that we're rightly living it so in these days these guys were not in it for the right right reason they weren't even called by god it was a career and so we see man heavy heavy warning you know first peter 4 17 says that when judgment comes it begins in the house of the lord and when god judges the church it's not going to begin in the pews it'll begin in the pulpit So anyone who aspires to be a teacher, a leader, a pastor, a preacher, they need to make sure going into this, they understand that accountability. As a matter of fact, if you read Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 33, it says that if you don't warn the people and they die, then their blood is on your hands. And so for us, we have to know this. I mean, like I mentioned last week, we're in a war, so we need the warnings. If you're living in sin, God can't bless your life. And I hope that we we take that to heart because I will say this, I take it to heart. If I mistreat my wife, how can I expect God to bless me? If I mistreat my children, how can I expect God to bless me? If I don't pray, how can I expect God to bless me? If God's staying fast and you don't, how can you expect God to bless? Whatever it is, whatever it is the Holy Spirit is saying, Manny, pray and obey, pray and obey, pray and obey, but you don't then how can we expect God to bless? And so for us, it's a heavy warning. These guys right here were not doing that for the people. And so it's good to be warned. At least I hope you guys are okay with it, man. I hope you are. Because it keeps us on track. It keeps us in a place of holiness when we understand that God is a holy God. You know, these false prophets right here were telling the people of Judah that everything's going to be okay. They were even saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. It was a catastrophic message to the people that they were called to care for. God would judge Judah, and we're going to come back to that. But the cool thing that we see a lot of times when we're reading the prophets is that, you know, it's so cool to see that integrated within these prophecies of warning is the prophecies of blessing. You know, the next prophecy here is primarily in reference to what's been taking place in the last 70 years of our generation. It's so cool to read right here. Look what it says in verse 3, Jeremiah 23. But God says, I will gather together the remnant of my flock from the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their own sheepfold, and they will be fruitful and increase in number. And so this right here is so cool, you guys. I hope you're excited about prophecy. Man, this, I've been just so blessed studying this chapter. It, it, this prophecy we can see with our own eyes. No one in our generation can say that God was in any way unfair not to show us the truth of whether or not his word is divine. Because right here, we're going to see it's right before our eyes. Because God is saying, I will regather the, the Jews to Israel, you know, and so you might today, you know, if you haven't really looked into it, you might think, well, they've always been there. Well, they kind of have ever since God put them in the land, but there have been days where it's been up and down, and then it went really down low in 1917, I believe. We have some uh, charts right here that I want to show you guys. Oh, I'm sorry, 1517. Look at that. In the year 1517, there was a total of 5,000 Jews in Israel. I mean, hardly any were there. It was 1.7% of the population. 
But today, I mean, when Israel became a nation again, there was right around 700,000 Jews, 1948. That's a miracle in and of itself. But today, there's over 7 million Jews. And so it's close to, what, 73% of the population in Israel. And so you look at that, and you see the growth, and you see all the people coming back from all over the place, over three. You might wonder, well, they were populated, right? They had a lot of babies, right? That's how they got a lot of Jews. No, 3 million Jews came back, over 3 million, returned to Israel just like the Bible said they would. And we're going to see this. This is really in reference to not that first uh, Aaliyah, not the first time they went back uh, from Babylon. We're just going to see because it's a multiplicity of countries and they come from, from the north. And so it's an interesting thing, not just by migration. They actually came back and this happened in such an awesome way. Uh, something else that's fascinating, I'm just going to say as a side note, is the Russian connection. And so um, not only is the invasion of, of Israel in, in Ezekiel 38, you know, it describes Russia coming in to invade Israel. But the, the interesting thing to me that when you look at this is the immigration predicted uh, from Russia as well. Uh, since we're here, look at Jeremiah 31. And look at verse 8. It says, and again, this, this, we're getting into some really cool sections of Jeremiah. This is now they're under the new covenant. But in verse 8 right here, it says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. And so it's really simple to see that God predicted that the Jews would return in the last of the last days to Israel you have 3 million Jews coming from all over the world. But right there, it's interesting in Jeremiah 31.8 that it kind of emphasizes the north country and then all the other countries. And so we look back now in history, an interesting thing, in 1971, the Soviet Union lifted its ban and more than 150,000 Soviet Jews immigrated to Israel during this period. Motivated by, by religion, ideological aspiration, economic opportunity, and the desire to escape anti-Semitism, right? But that's not it. The wave of immigration was followed two decades later by a larger aliyah. The 1990s a post-Soviet mass began when Mikhail Gorbachev opened the borders of Russia and allowed the Jews to leave the country for Israel and so from 89 to 2006, close to 1 million Soviet Jews migrated to Israel. And so remember I'm talking about 3 million Jews came back from all over the world, but over one, it's close to 1.2 million Jews came back from the north country, came back from Russia. And that's exactly what the Bible says. It's interesting when you look at it, we have another map, another graphic to show you just basically how, yeah, they came from all over the world, Asia Pacific, Latin America, Caribbean, North America, Africa, Middle East, North Africa, the different places. But by large, Eastern Europe, 56% came from that area right there. And so when you look at this, to me, it's fascinating because one of the reasons why the Bible uh, gives us prophecy and we see fulfilled prophecy is because God wants us to see that his word is true. His prophecies have come to pass, all the ones in the past, and therefore all the ones in the future will as well. This is why we need to be ready for the return of Jesus. There was this regathering from all over the world, especially Russia, which would be different from what we see when they came back from Babylon. You know, and so what we're finding, you guys, is as we're seeing all the Jews come back into Israel and they're growing in this, we, we, it's called an aliyah, then what's going to happen next is the rapture of the church, First Thessalonians four sixteen through 17, and other passages. Then the Russian invasion of Israel, Ezekiel 38. And we see things, you see things happening in, in, in Russia right now. And so God is kind of telling us this is happening. After that, there's a seven-year tribulation, which is the final week of the 70 weeks of Daniel. 
And then after that is the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's called the millennial reign. Uh, we read about that in Revelation 20, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. In other words, six times God says it'll be a thousand-year reign, literal reign when Jesus comes back to return. And so this is where Jeremiah 23, 4 begins to take place. Look what it says in Jeremiah 23, 4. During this thousand-year reign, then I will appoint responsible shepherds who will care for them and they will never be afraid again. Never again. Now, in one sense, Israel is kind of afraid now because things are going on in Israel. I mean, we're talking from the Arabs, the, the Palestinians. I mean, we, there's threats and from Syria, you name it. So they're, they're, they're not there yet. But it's not until during the millennial kingdom will they'll never be afraid again. Not a single one will be lost or missing. God says, I, the Lord, have spoken. So you got the bad shepherds then, but God is saying, hey, Israel, one day I'm going to give you these responsible shepherds. And this is in reference to the apostles faithfully, responsibly caring for Israel during the millennial kingdom. That's something that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, because Peter said, hey, Lord, what about us? We left everything to follow you. And so the Lord said, assuredly, I say to you that in that regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when you got the kingdom, you're going to need a king. And watch this next prophecy. It's so cool. Look at verse 5. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. If you have a new King James, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, and a king shall reign and prosper, execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And so the New Living Translation, it's good. Sometimes it's simple to understand. In this case, I believe it oversimplifies it because it takes out the word branch. Branch is a huge prophecy in the Bible. You know, just when you thought Jeremiah was killing all the kings, so to speak, as if he's done with the Davidic dynasty, he kind of puts it all to together. And the coming king would be the perfect combination of pastor and politician, which, I mean, in all reality, he's not a politician. He's not elected. He's selected by the Father. It's a crown that he earns with the cross. And you guys know Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on his thigh. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so basically what you see, what we see going on right now, it's not, you don't have to be like a, an individual with some type of theological degree from the seminary. All you got to do is look over at Israel and see, well, there was one time when there was only 5,000 Jews, then all of a sudden that swelled to 700,000 Jews. Now there's over 7 million Jews in Israel. Over 3 million have come back from all over the world, just like the Bible said, and over 1 million of them came from Russia, the north country, just like the Bible would say in Jeremiah 31, verse 8. So all this is getting our attention. Ezekiel 36 said that Israel would be fruitful. Boom, came to pass. Ezekiel 37, same thing. They'd be prosperous. They come back to the land. These dry bones live. And so what God is saying, Russia, what's happening in Russia, what's happening in Ukraine, all that is part of God saying, hey, these are the signs. We don't know the day or the hour, but we as Christians know the word, and so we can be aware of the season. So it won't take us by surprise. What comes next? The rapture of the church. It can happen at any time. You know, Pastor Wall was messing around the other day. He thought he got left behind, but he's not going to get left behind. <laughs> you know, but how about you? If the Lord were to come today, would you be left behind? We have to make sure that we're ready after the rapture. More than likely that comes before um, the, the Russian invasion, although some say the Russian invasion comes first, where Russia will invade Israel, Israel will defeat Russia. But we know the rapture, seven-year tribulation period, in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, says there's one more week left, one more seven-year period. And then after that, we have the thousand-year reign. And then after the thousand-year reign, where the Bible says the devil's in uh, the, you know, the Abuso, he's chained there for a thousand years, he gets re-released, there musters up a final rebellion, and then after that is a new heaven 
and the new earth. And so I'm looking forward to it. Right now, the whole world is looking to you know, politics and leaders like that. You know, they think that they're going to rescue them, but there is no man other than Christ that will rescue us. And so here he mentions the branch, and um, it's really, really cool. We, we see the significance of this title in a couple other places. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen says, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Escaped what? Escaped that tribulation period. Now they're survivors going into the millennial kingdom. So, you know, you look at this, and it's an interesting thing. When you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod, a shoot or branch from the stem or stalk or trunk of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And so this all adds up. Jeremiah is saying that all these kings, there are four kings that came after Josiah, the godly king. Jeremiah prophesied during the reigns of five kings. Josiah was a good king, but the next four were bad. All of them are going to die. The governors that are appointed after them would be carried away. And so as Jeremiah is prophesying these kings, it's kind of like a tree getting cut down. It's exactly what Jeremiah is saying. But out of that tree, there would come a root. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, like a, 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 some type of a, a stalk that grows out of the, the, dead, the, dead, the dead tree, kind of. And that's what we're seeing here. It's so cool when you read Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Dr. Henry Morris said, the rod from the stem of Jesse is actually a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. Jesse was, of course, the father of King David, so the prophecy indicates that the family tree coming from Jesse would eventually be cut down. Jeremiah 22, 30, we're going to see that. Later, a new branch would somehow rise out of the dead stump. This was fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus, the greater son of David. Listen, you guys are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're, we're saved. Because we have placed our faith in something that is factual. The Bible predicted one day that this rod, uh, this branch would come. And so, cool thing, there's so much we could talk about. One other thing before we leave this that I thought was fascinating about the branch was how you can look at, the four, at four Old Testament prophecies and see how they perfectly parallel the way Jesus is presented in the four Gospels. And so here we see he's king. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the king of the Jews. And here it says in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And so there's the branch presented as the king. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. And so he's the branch, the king. Now he's the branch, the servant. And that would parallel the gospel of Mark, where Jesus is presented. He's written to the Romans, 60 million slaves. He's presented as a servant. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And so Zechariah 6.12 emphasizes that he's a man, which would parallel the gospel of Luke, which presents Jesus as a man in perfect humanity. And then in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Now, again, this is where the New Living Translation, I understand, you know, we read it so sometimes it's simple, but it doesn't capitalize Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, means it's God's covenant name. It means that that's almighty God. It's not Elohim, it's Yahweh. And so right here it says, in that day the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. And when we find that his name, uh, the branch, is presenting Jesus as God, that would parallel John chapter 1. And so the king is coming, the servant, I mean, the, the God-man, you know, he's coming, you guys. 
And it's so cool. Today, the Jews, um, they're still waiting for their Messiah. Did you guys know that? They're still waiting for their Messiah. I don't know if you guys knew about this or not, but in Israel today, if you were to go and rent an apartment in Israel, you might sign a contract that has what's called the Messiah Clause. Have you guys ever heard of that? You can look it up online. Uh, I, I don't know if you know, but a lot of the residents in Jerusalem have signed that clause. And the clause basically says that when the Messiah returns, then certain things would happen. In apartment contracts around the city, there are clauses stipulating what will happen to the apartment if or when the Jewish Messiah comes. It's called the Messiah Clause, and the contract stipulates that in the event of the coming Messiah or Jewish Redeemer, the lease may be immediately terminated at the will of the landlord. The owners, uh, generally religious Jews living abroad, are concerned that he will arrive, the Messiah will arrive, build the third temple, turn Israel into a paradise, and they will be stuck waiting for their apartment tenants' contract to run out before they can move back. And so, um, interesting thing. Imagine that. You're, you own an apartment. You live in the States, but you have an apartment in Jerusalem. There is a clause that if the Messiah comes, immediately your contract expires because the individual here in America wants to go back and live under those circumstances. Now, the writer of this article, it's an interesting uh, article, they said that every single realtor they contacted knew about this clause. And there's only one realtor that they contacted that they said had not experienced it themselves. And so they know he's coming. Uh, We know he's coming. The signs are there. You know, what we look at right here is so interesting. Jesus fulfilling this, uh, coming as God, coming as man, coming as servant, coming as king. Why did he come? Why do we see this branch presented in such a way? And you guys know, right? He came to save us. He came to save us. Look what it says in verse 6. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord our righteousness, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh Tzidkanu. Now, in that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. In that day, says the Lord, when people are taking an oath, they will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Instead, they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel back to their own land from the land of the north and from all the countries to which he had exiled them. Then they will live in their own land. His name is Jehovah Tzidkanu. And that's a huge name because it means the Lord, our righteousness. And so not only will this descendant of David be the sovereign during the millennial kingdom, but he will be a righteousness forever and ever. So much so that that's his name, the Lord, our righteousness. And we need that, you guys. You know what? I'm a sinner just like you, and I would probably even say that I'm a chief of sinners. Part of that being because the Bible says to whom much is given, much more is required. And so I have to realize I'm in big trouble because I don't have the righteousness necessary on my own to go to heaven. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, but we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And so what Isaiah says right there in 64.6 is the best that we can do is like a filthy rag in God's sight. You know, and I don't know if I you know, think of the sanctuary, those that are watching, people you know, or even people on planet Earth. Who's the, 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 the most moral person of all men, of all mankind, you know, in the history of the world, other than Jesus. And the Bible says that even that individual, you might be thinking, well, what about Mother Teresa? You know, you think of other individuals. The Bible says their their righteousness is as filthy rags. Why? Because it's presented in the sight of a perfect and holy God. You know, any thought, you know, that we might think that's wrong, the things, inclinations of the flesh, you know, all that kind of stuff is taken into consideration. So we don't have any righteousness of our own. Therefore, on our own, we have no hope to go to heaven. 
And that's why this is so important. Jesus, the, pra- the branch, was crucified on a tree, and he gives us the opportunity to have his righteousness imputed into our account so that when you place your faith in Christ, we then are given that forgiveness so that, you know, I don't know if you guys ever think about the day that you stand before Jesus. You ever think about that day, man? It could happen any time. You know, none of us have tomorrow guaranteed, so I'm going to stand before him and, and think about it if you stand only in your own righteousness. And so we need the righteousness of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so he made Jesus to bear our sins so that basically we can then be forgiven. Um, one person said it this way, um, God the Father treated his son as if he lived our life, and now he treats us as if we lived his. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And by the way, that's not just like pulling out all the bad stuff from your life. Believe you me, it's more than that. It's, yeah, you won't go to hell. Praise God. Pulling out the bad stuff. No, you're imputed with the righteousness of Christ into your account. So all the good stuff, so to speak, that the Son deserves, you and I will be recipients of. See, because He is our righteousness. It's so cool when you look at this. You know, a lot of passages in the book of Romans, I thought it'd be cool just to look at some of them with you. If you would turn to, to, to Romans, roam over to Romans. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. And I know these are familiar passages, but speaking of the righteousness of God, how can I be right in his sight? Because do you guys ever sin? We do, and we will do it again, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, for the rest of our lives. Unfortunately, because we live in fallen bodies, we will fall short. And so we really need to know this. Romans chapter 1, look what it says in verse 16. For I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God, there it is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live, how? By faith. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you then experience the righteousness of God into your account. Look at Romans chapter 3. If you would, look at Romans 3 and verse 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, again, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time that his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has done what? Place their faith in Jesus. I just want to make sure that's super clear, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not in the works of ourselves because we could never make it. You know, have you placed your faith in Jesus? He died for you, rose again. Yes, Lord, you are my Lord. I place my faith in you. Therefore, he says, God then can justify you And in the process, he's just in doing so because all your sins were placed on Jesus. And so to be justified is to be declared legally righteous in God's sight. It's just as if you'd never sinned. Why? Because the branch, his name is Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And I pray that that reaches your heart 
You know, Paul, the apostle, would later write in Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so isn't it cool, reading in the book of Jeremiah chapter 23, reading about Jesus, reading about the branch, reading about the way the Jews coming back to the land, all this kind of stuff. You know, and another thing we're going to now go and look at is, you know, we're living in a world where there are many false prophets. And so you guys, you got to be careful. You have to be careful. Look what we read here in verse 9. Jeremiah says, My heart is broken because of the false prophets, and my bones tremble. I stagger like a drunkard, like someone overcome by wine, because of the holy words the Lord has spoken against them. For the land is full of adultery, and it lies under a curse. The land itself is mourning. Its wilderness pastures are dried up, for they all do evil and abuse what power they have. Even the priests and prophets are ungodly, wicked men. I have seen their despicable acts right here in my own temple, says the Lord. You know, and of course, today we know that our bodies are the temple of God. And sometimes people have secret sins. You know, they're doing things they ought not to. God sees that. The church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the local congregation is described as a temple. And so, man, uh, today I was reading in Joshua chapter 7 about the sin there that, of Achan and how it hindered the congregation. Prayerfully, when we come to a study like this and God is saying, I see you in the church, I see your sin, that if that's you, if that's me, then we would change. We would just surrender those things to God because if it's sin, it's no good for you. And so right here, it's interesting, Jeremiah is prophesying the same time that Ezekiel is prophesying. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is over there in in Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 8, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like he makes holes in the temple walls and he sees the elders, he sees the leaders worshiping demons, worshiping false gods. And so remember what idolatry is. It's any time you put anyone or anything before God. We have to make sure God's first in our life. Right here in verse 12, it says, Therefore the paths they take will become slippery. They will be chased through the dark, and there they will fall. For I will bring disaster upon them at the time fixed for their punishment. I, the Lord, have spoken. I I saw that the prophets of Samaria were terribly evil, for they prophesied in the name of Baal and led my people of Israel into sin. That's the northern kingdom. Remember, they got conquered by Assyria in 722. They led the people astray. But now, in verse 14, I see that the prophets of Jerusalem are even worse. They commit adultery and love dishonesty. They encourage those who are doing evil so that no one turns away from their sins. These prophets are as wicked as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah once were. There are false prophets today. They're on the radio. They're at the bookstores. They're on television. They're all over YouTube. People are watching them all the time. And they're making money. And they're there. And they got a following. And they have subscribers or whatever it might be. But one day, justice will be served. Right here, the Lord says uh, the paths they take will become slippery, like walking on ice. Uh, their paths will get dark, and there they will fall. Disaster, God says, as he lets down the gavel. Right here, he compares it to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, something we read about in Genesis 19. Uh, Sodom, we know is obviously the origin of that word sodomy. These two cities symbolizing homosexuality, And in Genesis 19, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah received the the rain of fire and brimstone. But it's interesting what we read right here. It's not just them or those people or those type of people. Right here, God says it's Judah who was encouraging evil. uh, And they were strengthening the hands of the evildoers because they were not warning them to turn from their sins. You know, it's something that we see today 
in the church, unfortunately. You know, you've got certain guys and, you know, people that they won't teach the full counsel of God. You know, in the book of Acts, when Paul said, my hands are clean because I have not shunned to declare to you the full counsel of God. I don't know for sure if he necessarily taught them, you know, from Genesis to Malachi. He may have. But really what it means right there that he taught them the full counsel of God is that he taught them everything about God. The love of God, praise God, but the judgment of God. You know, he taught them about heaven, but he also taught them about hell. He taught them about grace, you know, but then he also shared with them the importance of the law and what it does. I mean, you know, for us, praise God, it's simple. Now I just teach through the whole Bible. Now I probably wouldn't want to teach through Jeremiah. I'd rather teach through a book that might be more encouraging, but that's when I think we fail because we need the whole Bible, to get a complete understanding of who God is. And so here we see these guys, um, they weren't saying, hey, you got to turn. They weren't not in any way fellowship with God. You know, last night it was so sad. I, I was talking to one of the, the sisters after the women's study, and she just had a, a question because unfortunately her coworker goes to a church where she said they had a, a church vote. Now, some churches, their congregational rule, and, um, and they had a vote whether or not they would allow LGBTQ leaders in the church. And so it's one thing, you know, to be in the church, and, you know, if you guys know of people, we love them. We love you. If that's you, and if that's a struggle that you have, we, we love you. But, but the Bible clearly says, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, that that's sin that will prevent you from going to heaven. That's all. And so come with us, get saved and, and change and watch what Christ will do. You know, we're not haters. We're, we're not haters by any means. But this church, they had the vote to basically say, oh, you're okay. You're okay in your sin. Continue in your conduct. Not just, you know, being part of the church, but now leading the church. And it was just so sad. It's a big church in Whittier. And they voted thumbs up. And so this is what's going on. Now, what's going to happen to their leaders? What's going to happen to that pastor? What's going to happen to those who are running that church? This is what we're talking about. The judgment of God because they scattered the people. Rather than leading them to heaven, they opened up the doors to hell. See, this is important for us. So God will judge. Look at verse 15. Therefore, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says concerning the prophets. I will feed them with bitterness and give them poison to drink. For it is because of Jerusalem's prophets that wickedness has filled this land. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says to his people. Do not listen to these prophets when they are prophesied to you, filling you with futile hopes. They are making up everything they say. They do not speak for the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise my word, don't worry, the Lord says you will have peace. And to those who stubbornly follow their own desires, they say, no harm will come your way. It's okay, go ahead and continue in your activity. Even though the Bible says it's wrong, it's okay, I say it's right. No, we can't do that. The next verse is a really uh, a cool verse. I love verse 18. And even in the New Living Translation, it says, Have any of these prophets been in the Lord's presence to hear what he is really saying? Has even one of them cared enough to listen I mean, those guys over there who are leading that church astray, those individuals over there who are not preaching the word, I mean, in all reality, they are not stopping, getting on their face, getting on their knees, and listening to the voice of God. You know, especially in Jeremiah's day. You know, in Jeremiah's day, there wasn't the completion of the Bible. There was still the formation of the Bible taking place. Jeremiah was a prophet called by God. And so we see that they had to listen. He had to listen. The other guys, it was not the voice of God. And so these other ones, they were not listening to the voice of the Lord. 
You know, you look at this right here, and in those critical days, there were messengers who were running, but they hadn't been sent. Isn't it illegal, you guys, to put um, mail in someone's mailbox, like, without a stamp? Or you're not supposed to do that, right? Isn't the post guy supposed to do that, right? The postman, the mailman, right? Well, in one sense, that's what they're doing. They're just, oh, I'm going to put it in, I'm going to put it in. Somebody arrest the guy. (laughs) No, because this is exactly what was happening. You know, here we see um, in our church just so many things that are relevant to us today. The mission for every pastor, preacher, and even every Christian is to be able to say that which I heard from the Lord, I delivered to you. I want to encourage you because I know life can be busy. Make sure you hear the voice of God. He speaks through his word. And so make sure you read that Bible But even when you're praying, I believe God will put things on your heart. But the problem is, a lot of times people don't stop to listen. They don't stop and pray. You know, when I'm praying, God shows me things. I know it's him. You know, but primarily it's his word. And so we see right here in verse 19, look, the Lord's anger bursts out like a storm, a whirlwind that that swirls down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not diminish until it has finished all he has planned. In the days to come, you will understand all this very clearly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they run around claiming to speak for me. I have given them no message, yet they go on prophesying. If they had stood before me, same thing kind of, and listened to me, they would have spoken my words and they would have turned my people from their evil ways and deeds. You know, one of the most uh, popular preachers on TV nowadays, uh, Joel Osteen, is a false prophet. You know, I want to share with you guys, uh, I'm going to look into it and probably give you a list of individuals that you should stay away from because he tells them, don't listen to them. I don't know why people listen to messages that don't have the full counsel of God. You know, for us, we have to be so careful, you guys. Right here, we see the Lord's anger. It bursts on the scene. You see, the full counsel of God presents both sides. You know, what we would call the positive as well as the negative. His yes as well as his no. His approval as well as his anger. His wonder along with his wrath. The full counsel will come from a faithful counselor who will teach on both heaven and hell. These prophets somehow thought they could get away with their reckless ministry, and so they delivered the dictates of their own hearts, their own dreams, their own opinions. But God didn't send them, even though they claimed to be called by God. If they were called, the message would have been different. And what a difference those who actually are called by God make. Because we know the history. Uh, 605 BC, the Babylonians came. Okay, they took away some. Daniel was one of them. 597, they came again. And then they still didn't listen. Then 586, millions of Jews were killed. Why? Because they had bad pastors, bad teachers who didn't warn them. Our God is a holy God. You know, and, and wherever you're at, you know, there's none of us here that have arrived. And that's why I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. As I'm going through the book of Jeremiah, I'm like, oh, Lord, that hurts. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. God is just chiseling away at me. He's saying, Manny, take off your shoes. The place that you stand is holy ground. And then, you know, but we make so many excuses. Well, grace, grace. Oh, God's gracious. No, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We should be different. This is what we're seeing, man. I mean, it's so crazy. These guys right here, uh, verse 23, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I'm far away at the same time. The NET makes this a little clearer. It says, do you people think that I am some local deity and not the transcendent God? I mean, he's not like a demigod. Right here, it says in verse 24, can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and the earth? You guys, I don't want to sound legalistic or anything, but he sees you when you're on your phone. 
I mean, this right here, this worldwide web thing in our hands, oh, it could be the fate, it could be the doom of you. You know, don't, don't check out chicks. Don't. You know, don't do that. Don't feed your flesh because it only leads to something worse. You know, I just pray that we would understand we can't hide from God. I mean, look at the question right there. Verse 24, can anyone hide from me in a secret place? No. We can't hide from the one who fills heaven and earth. Psalm 139 talks about that. Hebrews 4.13. Verse 25, I have heard these prophets say, listen to the dream I had from God last night. And then they proceed to tell lies in my name. How long will this go on? If they are prophets, they are prophets of deceit, inventing everything they say. By telling these false dreams, they are trying to get my people to forget me, just as their ancestors did by worshiping the idols of Baal. Let these false prophets tell their dreams, but let my true messengers faithfully proclaim my every word. There is a difference between straw and grain, or the wheat and the chaff. Uh, One is useless, right? And the other has substance to it. Verse 29, does not my word burn like fire, says the Lord? Is Is it not like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces? I mean, that's why it's so important, whatever church you go to, you make sure they are opening up that Bible and they are teaching you it. Uh, and you let me tell you something. If I just read it to you, that would be sufficient. But sometimes you go to churches and they don't even read the Bible. Maybe a verse here, maybe a little, but then all of a sudden, all this other stuff. No, I mean, just, you know, we're working our way through the word of God because let me tell you something here. God's word is like a fire. It can warm up a cold house. It can light up a dark road. Maybe you're here and your heart's grown cold. God says, I'll, I'll make it hot. Open it up with a conversation with Christ. Luke 24, 32 says, And they talked to one another, and those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That's God's word. And it's like a hammer as well in his hand, right? And it can break a stony heart. It can dash to pieces the deepest doubts. There's power in God's word. Maybe there's someone out there and you know, you know, they're struggling, they got a hard heart, and you think they can never be reached. Just keep praying because God can take his hammer and he can smash that heart's hard heart. Jeremiah was different than these guys that sometimes, I don't know if you guys have ever been um, to churches or places and they're more into experience that, oh, the Lord told me this. And well, how do you know the Lord told you that? You say that all the time. You know, are you sure? Are you sure? Okay, I'll hear what you have to say, but let me test it. Well, I had this dream, brother. You know, no, give me the word, right? This is the, the difference here. Verse 30, therefore, says the Lord, I am against these prophets who steal messages from each other and claim they are from me. I am against these smooth-tongued prophets who say this prophecy is from the Lord. God says, I am against these false prophets. Their imaginary dreams are flagrant lies that lead my people into sin. I did not send or appoint them, and they have no message at all for my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. And suppose one of the people or one of the prophets or priests asks you, well, what prophecy has the Lord burdened you with now? You must reply, you are the burden. That's what Jeremiah was supposed to tell the false prophets. You're the burden. The Lord says he will abandon you. If any prophet, priest, or anyone else says, I have a prophecy from the Lord, I will punish that person along with his entire family. You should keep asking each other, what is the Lord's answer? Or what is the Lord saying? But stop using this phrase, prophecy from the Lord, for people are using it to give authority to their own ideas, turning upside down the words of our God, the living God, the Lord of heaven's armies. You know, the Bible says the faith was delivered once and for all. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, we can't add to it. And so we have the completion of the canon. And so just, man, praise God for his word, you guys. Uh, make sure that you're careful in anyone, anything you listen to. Always test it 
with the word. I, I get blessed sometimes after a study when someone will come up to me and say, hey, you know, what about that? Are you sure about this? Or, you know, it was a scripture reference for that. Because what that shows is that you're listening, that you're Bereans. And the final authority is not what the pastor says. The final authority is right here. And so verse 37, this is what you should say to the prophets. What is the Lord's answer? Or what is the Lord saying? But suppose they respond, this is a prophecy from the Lord. Then you should say, well, this is what the Lord says. Because you have used this phrase, prophecy from the Lord, when they were telling the people it was, they're going to be okay and that was wrong, even though I warned you not to use it, I will forget you completely. I will expel you from my presence along with this city that I gave to you and your ancestors, and I will make you an object of ridicule, and your name will be infamous throughout the ages. You guys see the difference between Jeremiah and all these other guys? I was reading one of the guys who was just saying there was no other genuine prophet in all of Jerusalem at that time, other than Jeremiah. And so what a difference, huh, they, they, they would make. I mean, Jeremiah leading us, sharing the truth, but these guys taking them the wrong way. That's the difference between good leadership and poor leadership. One has the word and the other doesn't. You know, we have to make sure that we follow Jesus and his word and those whom God has truly called. Because one leads to the Lord being our righteousness. Because by faith, we will follow him. You know, in closing, I wanted to share one last uh, story. I thought that was interesting. Because I know it's hard. You know, some people, they don't like uh, the heavy messages of warning. Hey, uh, Manny, um, you got to make sure your life is right. You know, you act one way at church, you act a different way at home, or whatever it might be. I mean, we have to be careful with stuff like that. We can. And so the Lord is warning me. And I, after all these years, man, he's still changing me. But I, I, I read this one story about Tilly Smith. I don't know if you guys have heard of her. Some of you probably have because she's really, really famous and she's received rewards from uh, presidents and just different things like that. Um, but uh, back in 2004, on Boxing Day, Tilly Smith and her family were enjoying an early morning walk along the beach in Thailand. And that must have been beautiful. And so the family, they were on the holidays uh, from the United Kingdom. And she was only 10 years old at the time. And so um, they, they, they couldn't, she couldn't help but notice the receding shoreline. And the ocean, it was frothing weird at the surface. It was different. The waves weren't coming and going as they normally do at the beach. Instead, they were just coming. So two weeks earlier in her geography class, Tilly had learned about tsunamis. The class watched, I guess, a black and white video, of 1946 tsunami in Hawaii. And standing on the shoreline of that beach in Thailand, Tilly was positive the warning signs were the same. She said it was the exact same froth. It was sizzling. And so um, she said, there's going to be a tsunami. She began to yell at her family. There's going to be a tsunami. Um, Mom didn't believe her. She just kind of kept walking. But Tilly didn't give up with the warnings. You know, it's like sometimes people, they don't want to hear it. I'm out of here. But she just kept warning. She kept warning. Continuing to get more and more agitated, she screamed at her family to run. She knew uh, there had been an earthquake offshore. The tsunami would be next. She said, I was screaming, please, mom, please come back with me. If you don't, you won't survive. Tilly's father finally listened. Unsettled by his daughter's distress, he eventually helped her alert guards and, and, and resort staff, and they cleared the beach. You'll probably think I'm bonkers, he said, but my daughter's completely convinced there's going to be a tsunami, he told ABC News. Penny Smith, Tilly's mother, was one of the last on the beach as 30 feet waves began to appear. Penny was running, screaming, get the kids, and I looked around and the waters were coming. The family and 100 other people were on that beach that day. They barely made it to the second floor of the resort where they were safe. This beach was one of the few beaches in all of Thailand that reported no casualties. 
In that tsunami, it's one of the largest natural disasters in recorded history, 225,000 people died. But there were 104 who lived because there was a girl who was educated and she knew, she knew that the tsunami was coming and she warned. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what Jeremiah was trying to do. And now, as we see all the signs in the world that we're living in, you know, the people back in the land and, and Russia, what's going on in there, and all these other signs. Listen, if you want to save lives, up to you. If you want to save lives, then we have to make sure that we live it. And then, Lord, give us the grace to be able to share this with others. It's a simple thing, you know, you can tell them, hey, we don't know the day or the hour, but it sure seems like the signs of the Jesus' second coming. And so let me just tell you about his first coming. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. Put your faith in him and you watch what will happen. You know, if you're here today and you haven't yet done that, you haven't really done that, I pray that today you would. Maybe you're watching online and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today when I was praying, I was thinking about the day that I got saved. And I was just talking to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I remember when I said that simple prayer to receive you into my life. And you came into my life. And I was praying. I said, Lord, if there's anyone out there who has never yet prayed that prayer, they haven't accepted you, I pray that they would know that if they do, and you will come into their life. And so I pray that you would.